warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Special edition of Real Britannia. Scott here and Tony. Hello. Hello, mate. What we've decided to do, because we're going to start the, the James Bond retrospective, which you hopefully have just listened to on episode 007, we're going to take the opportunity to use 008 to promote our sister podcast, which is Rainbow Valley. Did you see what we did there, 007? That's good, Darren. It is, isn't it? That was your idea as well. It was. Yeah. I know one good idea for a change. <laughs> so... 008 Rainbow Valley. How would you describe Rainbow Valley, Tony? Um, an informative podcast <laughs> yeah. um, with visual mind tricks. Because I said, <laughs> Wow, I was expecting that. <laughs> um, although you're listening to a podcast, you, you're like you could see it all. It's very good, it's very interactive. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, Scott's at his best, I think, of this. Takes me a hell of a long time to do each episode. Yeah, so you can see why. It's very in-depth, you're very knowledgeable. Oh, there's a lot of research goes into it. It's not, it's not all stored up in my brain, mate, I promise you. It's it's a lot, a lot of reading and a lot of writing. and a lot. It, it takes me a good month to write the thing and a couple of weeks to edit and put together. That's good. There's a lot of people out there, not that we're slating anyone else, but they'll have gone straight off the internet with it and just... Yeah, no, I get I get as many books and bits and pieces as I can get. And, and I like to, you know, if it's a familiar story, I like to find different sides to, you know, other people's viewpoints as well, or little fun facts to bring in that you, you, you may not know. You've listened to most of them, haven't you? Yeah, the majority, probably one or two I've not listened to. Yeah, and we've sort of covered... I don't want it all to be 60s music, but, you know, we've we've looked at Janis Joplin. Uh, Matt Munro is the latest episode, which you're halfway through, I believe. Oh, very, yeah, it's very, very good so far. Excellent. Um, but then I've covered things like the Profumo Affair, the March to Selma by Martin Luther King. And then there are movies in there because, for you know, I'm, I'm doing a movie from each year. So 1960, I think I did Psycho. I did Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, Doctor No was obviously you know the one we're going to be doing in a second, but yeah, if you if you want to take a little listen to the rest of the episode, stay tuned to the end of this because of the contact details and where you can download it will be. So without further ado, the Rainbow Valley Podcast. Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world.
story of James Bond on the big screen is a tale of highs and lows, ups and downs, twists and turns. The story of the making of the movies themselves is worthy of an Ian Fleming novel in its own right. It is the story that's taken over 60 years to tell and is still being told today. As important to this story as Connery, Lazenby, Moore, Dalton, Brosnan and Craig is the story of three other men. The three men who between them managed to bring one of the most successful and well-loved movie franchises to the big screen. No journey into the world of cinematic Bond can begin without a look at the importance of Messrs Fleming, Broccoli and Saltzman. To many people, James Bond is only an entity that can be found on the big screen. This of course is not the case. Bond was born long before 1962 when Sean Connery first introduced himself to Sylvia Trench at the casino in Doctor No. Many have said that Ian Fleming himself was the basis for the character of Bond, but as you'll soon hear, the inspiration for the world's most famous spy came from a variety of sources and influences. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of Doctor No and the birth of James Bond on the big screen. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's cool. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Ian Lancaster Fleming was born in London on May the 28th, 1908. He was the second of four boys born to Evelyn St. Kyle Rose and Valentine Fleming. Valentine Fleming was Member of Parliament for Henley in Oxfordshire from 1910. His father before him was a well-known Scottish financier who founded the Scottish American Investment Trust and the merchant bank Robert Fleming & Co. At the start of World War I, Valentine Fleming joined the Queen's own Oxfordshire Hussars and attained the rank of Major before being killed by German shelling on the Western Front in May 1917, one week before Ian's ninth birthday. 
His obituary in the Times was written by no less than Winston Churchill. From the age of five, Ian attended Durnford School in Dorset. It was here, according to Joan Delfortor's book British Mystery and Thriller Writers since 1940, that Ian Fleming suffered physical hardship and bullying. In 1921, he enrolled at Eton College. Throughout his time there, Fleming excelled at athletics and held the title of Victor Ladorum, or winner of the games, for two years between 1925 and 1927. Legend has it that at the same time that he was in the position to win this coveted title for the second time, a feat that had only been accomplished once previously in the school's history, Fleming was due to be beaten with a birch switch as punishment for some misdemeanour. Fleming's solution to this dilemma was to ask to be beaten 15 minutes earlier than scheduled and then run the race, his shorts still soaked with blood from the thrashing. His choice of lifestyle brought him into disagreement with his housemaster, who frowned upon Fleming's brashness and the sleekness of his hair oil. The fact that he owned a car and his flirtations with members of the opposite sex aggrieved him equally. Fleming's mother was convinced by said housemaster to remove him from Eton one term early in order to take an intensive course that would gain him entry into the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. He left in 1927, having spent less than a year there, without gaining a commission, but after contracting gonorrhea. Following Fleming's hasty exit from Sandhurst, his mother soon packed him off to the Tenerhof in Kitzbühel, Austria, ostensibly to prepare him for a potential role in the Foreign Office. The Tenerhof was a modest, privately run school, governed by former British spy Ernan Forbes Dennis, and his wife, the novelist Phyllis Botton. Following this, Fleming briefly went to study at Munich University and the University of Geneva before eventually failing the entry examinations for the Foreign Office. In due course, again with intervention from his mother, Fleming was given a position of sub-editor and journalist for the Reuters news agency. Fleming travelled extensively during his time at Reuters, spending a period in Moscow, but eventually family pressure forced Fleming into the world of banking back home in England, where he proved to be nowhere near as successful as his grandfather. The world post Second World War was an exciting, vibrant and changing place. Liam Fleming, despite becoming an essential part of the war effort, serving in naval intelligence and even forming his own group of audacious commandos, was expected by many to pursue a career in the media as a press journalist. This he did, as well as managing overseas correspondence for the Sunday Times group. Ian Fleming was proving to be a success in almost everything that he chose to undertake. A new chapter in his life, and certainly the most successful, would soon unfold on the Caribbean island of Jamaica.
Fleming had briefly visited the island during the war. He described it as a tropical luxury and the social habits as the sort that would raise in you that moral eyebrow which the heat might otherwise have drugged. Following the war, Fleming bought a large plot of land on the pure north shore. Next to the banana seaport of Orica on a coral peninsula, he built Goldeneye, a low contemporary house facing the Caribbean. They're looking for the cat, the cat that swallowed the rat. They want to show that cat the attitude of tree blind mice. The world in the late 40s and early 50s was entrenched in the Cold War. Germany and Berlin were split, the Iron Curtain was swathed over Bulgaria, Romania, Albania, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Hungary and Poland. China had succumbed to the rule of a communist regime. The communists also had a hold over North Vietnam and they managed to win elections in France and fueled hostile uprisings in Greece. The war in Korea thundered on whilst the US continued to test hydrogen bombs. Soviet spies were sentenced to death and Hollywood directors and writers were blacklisted for being members of the US Communist Party. All of these world events were laid out almost perfectly for Fleming's creative mind. But possibly the one key incident that led directly to the creation of James Bond occurred on the 25th of May 1951. It was on this date that two British diplomats, Donald Maclean and Guy Burgess, went missing. It was soon evident that they were Soviet spies who had worked in a number of highly sensitive positions, including the British Embassy in Washington. At this time, the uncovering of spies during the post-war years was nothing new. While some had even managed to pass atomic secrets to the Soviets, none would prove to be as damaging as Burgess and Maclean. There would only have been a few people who were aware that the two were under suspicion of espionage, and once they disappeared it became apparent that they'd been tipped off by someone else in MI6. The entire affair proved to be even more embarrassing to the British government as Burgess and Maclean were considered to be the right sort, part of an old boy network educated at Trinity College Cambridge, and indeed they would become known as the Cambridge Spies. The person that had tipped them off causing them to flee was fellow Cambridge spy Kim Philby. Fleming had long wanted to write an espionage novel, and the case of the Cambridge Spies may well have formed the basis for this. What Fleming did was to write a story that almost contradicted the story of Burgess and McLean by telling the story of a flamboyant heterosexual spy who knows the difference between right and wrong and between good and evil. The 
hero of the Fleming story would fall in love with a high-ranking female MI6 agent who was being wretchedly manipulated by the Soviets. By the end of the novel, Fleming's hero does not get to save the world. He doesn't even get the girl who tragically ends up killing herself. What he does do though is pledge to fight. He would leave the spying part to those that did it best. He himself would pursue the menace behind the spies and the threat that made them spy. Fleming would entitle this novel Casino Royale and its hero would be called James Bond. It's become well known that Ian Fleming chose the name James Bond from the author of a book in his collection at Goldeneye entitled Birds of the West Indies. It was selected for its blandness and that it did not sound like the name of a well-educated upper-class Oxbridge pupil. Casino Royale was published in London by Jonathan Cape, and Fleming's dream of creating a whole world with Bond as the hero battling evil began to take shape. By the time Live and Let Die, the second novel was published, the character had begun to develop into an athletic, non-erudite mid-thirties man and an individual of his time. As the character evolved, there were striking similarities evident between Bond and his creator. They shared comparable upbringings, likes, dislikes, tastes in clothes and eccentricities. They also both inhabited a world filled with gambling and casinos, cocktails and custom-made cigarettes. It was a world that Fleming described so well. A luxurious, lavish place, which seemed a whole world away from the atrophy of the post-war years. Each new novel was extremely anticipated by the reading public eager for each new novel every spring. And they were not to be disappointed as Blockbuster followed Blockbuster. In total, there will be 12 novels and two short story collections published between 1953 and 1966. After the publication of Casino Royal and Live and Let Die, there followed Moonraker, Diamonds of Forever, From Russia With Love and Doctor No. These were soon followed by Goldfinger, For Your Eyes Only, Thunderball, The Spy Who Loved Me and Honor Majesty's Secret Service, finishing off with You Only Live Twice, The Man With The Golden Gun, An Octopussy and The Living Daylight, the last two books being published posthumously. The Bond phenomena took off slower in the USA, but the Americans were the first to be treated to an on-screen Bond. A live TV adaptation of Casino Royale was broadcast in the autumn of 1954 with Barry Nelson playing the first screen incarnation of the spy, although in this version Bond was American and renamed Jimmy Bond. In the US, Moonraker was retitled Too Hot to Handle and was the first of the books to be released in paperback. 
Overall, the first four novels received a tepid response in America, but the fifth, from Russia with Love, elevated Bond from plain bestseller to literary phenomenon. Partly based on Fleming's experience when travelling to Turkey for an Interpol conference and the true story of the assassination of an American spy in 1950 on board the Orient Express, From Russia With Love formed the turning point in the fortunes of James Bond's literary adventures. With From Russia With Love completed, Fleming hired his first literary agent in October 1956 to handle his foreign literary rights. The Bond novels were soon published into numerous languages and it indicated the start of Bond's inordinate global success. Bond's creator found himself the subject of newspaper headlines in 1957 when Prime Minister Anthony Eden stayed for a while at Goldeneye after being told by his doctors to take undisturbed relaxation following the Suez Crisis. At about the same time, shortly after the publication of From Russia With Love in 1957, the Daily Express began to publish a daily James Bond comic strip. The Bond novels were now beginning to be noticed in America as well as the rest of the world, with Prince Philip even declaring himself to be an admirer. A few months after a particularly encouraging review of the Bond novels in the New York Herald Tribune, a young US senator was laid up at home with a cold. He telephoned a friend to ask if she had anything that he could possibly read whilst he was feeling unwell. Her reply was that she had a very good thriller written by a friend of hers. The friend in question was of course Ian Fleming. The lady was Marion Leiter, whose husband provided the surname for Bond's CIA buddy Felix Leiter. And the young senator with the cold? John Fitzgerald Kennedy. JFK would go on to tell people how much he enjoyed the novels, and when he met Fleming in 1960 whilst running for president, he was also impressed with his humour and his elegance. Fleming would also take great pride in knowing such a powerful figure that was also an admirer of his work. With all this success and global recognition, where could Fleming take James Bond next? The answer would present itself with events that would start to take place the previous year in 1959. The impact of these events is still being felt by the makers of the James Bond movies even today. In 1959, Ian Fleming formed a partnership with his friend Ivor Bryce and lawyer Ernest Caneo with the intention of making a James Bond movie. Bryce was to provide the financial backing and Kevin McClory was selected to be the director. Fleming began writing Thunderball in 1960, which was pretty much based on treatments that had been worked on earlier in the year. Jack Whittingham worked on two drafts of the script, but by late 1960 Fleming considered the whole project to be dead in the water. Director McClory had other ideas though. It was about this time that film producer Harry Saltzman contacted Fleming to option the Bond novels. Fleming's response was to demand an absurd amount of money to see if the offer was legitimate. He asked for $50,000 for a six-month option 
and $100,000 per title if and when any films were made. Saltzman, to the great amazement of Fleming, agreed without question. But more on this to follow. At this point, Kevin McClory managed to read a proof copy of the novel of Thunderball. Following this, he decided that it infringed upon the work he had completed on the movie story with Fleming, Caneo, Bryce and Whittingham. On the 17th of March 1961, Life magazine published its now famous list of President Kennedy's 10 favourite books, which included From Russia With Love. On the same day, Kevin McClory sued Fleming and Bryce in the High Court in London. Harry Saltzman was born Herschel Saltzman on the 27th of October 1915. In digging deep to research his story, it soon became apparent that his early life was surrounded in as much mystery and intrigue as an Ian Fleming novel. Saltzman was raised in Quebec, and after spending the first seven years of his life in St John, the family moved to Cleveland. Saltzman was attracted to showbiz from the age of six, putting on plays and shows for the family. In 1932, at the age of 17, he went to Paris to study political science with economics, but his love of the theatre soon lured him away. Working for a musical theatre producer, he soon found himself handpicking talent from travelling circuses and vaudeville halls all around Europe. Harry's war record is shrouded with intrigue. At the beginning of World War II, he served in the Royal Canadian Air Force in Vancouver. Evidence from this time suggests that Salzman was in fact a spy. With his command of foreign languages and knowledge of Europe, it made sense that he be chosen to play an active role in US intelligence during the Second World War. Salzman even worked briefly in the same field as Ian Fleming, that of psychological warfare, and it's documented that during this time both he and Ian Fleming were both in London. The first recorded meeting between Saltzman and Fleming, however, would not be until 1961, but several retired intelligence officers seemed to feel that they had a prior relationship well before this. At the end of the war, Saltzman helped to set up a film division for UNESCO, and after a brief unhappy marriage, he left his home in California and returned to Paris. <laughs> 
Commuting between Europe and the United States, he worked as production manager on the TV show Robert Montgomery Presents, but he was always dreaming of the next big thing. He would start a side business supplying wooden horses that he rented to carnivals and vacation hotels. More successful TV production work would follow with work in New York, London and Paris before eventually Harry made the breakthrough into the movie business. In 1956 he adapted a popular play of the time into the hit movie The Iron Petticoat starring Bob Hope. His way of working turned out to be the ideal template for success from now on, taking critically acclaimed material such as plays and adapting them into colourful entertainment. As the 50s faded away and the 1960s beckoned, he, along with John Osborne and Tony Richardson, would bring not colour, but the gritty realism of the kitchen sink drama to the big screen. As a trio, Woodfall Productions brought the world look back in anger in 1959, starring Richard Burton, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning with Albert Finney in 1960, and The Entertainer, also 1960, starring Laurence Olivier. Tony Richardson will recall what he described as the mini-empire built by Saltzman in his rented house in Chelsea. Secretaries, chauffeurs, multilingual cooks arrived from wherever, he'd say. International hookers rotated in the guest rooms. Hollywood stars like Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, producers like Charlie Feldman were often guests. Harry was totally in charge of the business side. It was sweet fun. The main thing that was instantly recognisable to those who met Harry Saltzman is that he was an extraordinarily good salesman. He could sell anything to pretty much anybody. He could go off with an idea and sell it. What he couldn't do, however, was later develop the idea itself. Looking back now at the English New Wave cinema as it became known, it's hard to imagine the difficulties Saltzman and Woodfall Productions had in selling them to America and the rest of the world. When Harry first screened a copy of Look Back in Anger to Jack Warner, for it was Warner Brothers' original financial input that had led to the creation of Woodfall, Warner looked at the screen for about seven or eight minutes before asking, what language are they talking? English, replied Harry. This is America, said Jack Warner, got up and walked out. Saltzman would later admit that Look Back in Anger didn't do much business anywhere in the world, and he had never made a film that got such good reviews, but was seen by so few people. Towards the end of 1960, Harry Saltzman left Woodfall, deciding it was time to try something different. Always hungry for something more, especially money, he still had his fairground flair and his eye on the next big thing. But at the same time, John Osborne and Tony Richardson had found their strengths, and they were making a name for themselves individually. Michael Dealey, future Oscar-winning film producer of The Deer Hunter, remembered that Osborne and Richardson were also in their own way very English. Harry was a short round Canadian and had once been a circus barker. Loaded with aggression, he loved to cause an argument. The main reason 
reason that Harry Saltzman had left Woodfall was quite simply, as he said to John Osborne, I bought the bomb books, all of them. Brian Lewis, Harry Saltzman's lawyer in London, just happened to be Ian Fleming's lawyer as well. Once Harry Saltzman had expressed an interest in the books, the lawyer soon began to urge Fleming to do a deal with him for commercial reasons. At this time, Ian Fleming was not a well man, and as such, if no rights were sold, the trust value would be artificially low. Fleming, in further meetings with Saltzman himself, admitted that the last film he had seen was Gone with the Wind, and that quite frankly he considered cinema as one of the lowest forms of art. Saltzman, always one to take on a challenge, presented a screening of Saturday night and Sunday morning to Fleming. Of course it would be quite safe to say that Ian Fleming was not your typical kitchen sink drama fan, but what happened was that over the next few weeks a rapport was formed, and it's believed that the pair may have exchanged tales of their clandestine war exploits. A deal was struck. Saltzman was granted a six-month option of the film rights to the existing James Bond novels for the sum of $50,000. Fleming himself couldn't really see what all the fuss was about, believing that the public would soon be tired of Bond after two or three films. Harry Saltzman's daughter Hilary believed that both her father and Ian Fleming almost certainly shared similar experiences of the intelligence nature during the war, and that Fleming truly felt that his books were safe in Saltzman's hands. Two of the novels, however, could not be included in the deal. Casino Royale had been sold previously to Gregory Ratoff, and the most recent of the novels, Thunderball, had not yet been published. Kevin McClory, of course, had been in place to direct the movie version that was to be based on a screenplay written by himself, screenwriter Jack Whittingham and Ian Fleming. McClory had discovered Fleming's novel, then used these ideas but didn't credit the team behind them. McClory would later recall, our last screenplay was called Thunderball. We only saw the book ten days before publication. We know Fleming was writing a book, but we didn't know that it was that one. We were friends and fellow co-writers. We took him to court. Fleming was genuinely upset that McClory and Whittingham thought that he had deliberately plagiarised them. All Fleming had done was simply followed his usual pattern of converting unused film and TV material into the book he was writing. During the writing process, he simply didn't remember that maybe someone else had suggested this or put forward that. McClory and Whittingham immediately sought an injunction to assert their co-ownership. Thunderball would eventually be published in early 1961, but legal action had precluded anyone else from exploiting it. As the months rolled by, Fleming's works became the first global literary phenomenon creating a new genre, the spy thriller. And of course, what greater endorsement could there be when Life magazine listed From Russia With Love as President Kennedy's ninth favourite book of the year? The books were selling in their tens of millions. Fleming became an international celebrity, and yet not one single movie version had been made. Summer 1961. Saltzman was to all extents and purposes a mere outsider, generally unknown in movie circles, despite some success as an independent producer. He found himself unable to obtain financing. He could not get an agreement with any production company or distributor. 
he was sitting on the hottest property in the world and the clock was ticking. Fleming, who of course was now desperate for a film deal, could potentially walk away with the option fee and still be able to sell the property whose value was increasing by the day. Time was running out, until one day, Saltzman's friend, the screenwriter Wolf Mankiewicz, called him with a strange request. Mankiewicz wanted Saltzman to meet someone, a certain Mr. Albert R. Cubby Broccoli. April 5th, 1909, saw the birth in Queens, New York, of the grandly named Albert R. Broccoliomolo Broccoli. The family had first cultivated the vegetable bearing their name in Italy many centuries before immigrating to the United States. The story goes that as a small child working on the family farm, one morning before school, young Albert witnessed the spirit of St. Louis flying overhead. In the cockpit, Charles Lindbergh, who leant over and waved to the young boy, It was this event, he would say in later life, that inspired the young lad from Long Island to walk just a little taller. It was the first time he really wanted to be something above and beyond what was expected of him. The name Cubby can be attributed to two sources. The first says that he had a cousin, Pasquale, only six weeks apart in age. They were very close, almost like brothers, but young Pasquale could not say the word Albert, so called him Cubby. The other story is that there was a famous cartoon at the time by a chap called Hirschfeld and he had created a character called A.B. Kabibble. Cubby said that the kids in school would liken him to the character and when they tired of calling him Kabibble, they started calling him Cubby. As Cubby and Pasquale grew up, the cousins travelled west. Pasquale, now calling himself Pat, was working as an agent and producer in Hollywood, eventually marrying the heiress Gloria Vanderbilt in 1941. He sent for Cubby, inviting him to leave the family farm and join him in Los Angeles. As an assistant director, Cubby would work with all of the greats, most notably Errol Flynn and Clark Gable. After a chance meeting with Howard Hughes, he was offered the job of assistant to director Howard Hawks. This led to Cubby working on 1939's infamous The Outlaw, starring Jane Russell. Cubby would go on to work extensively for both Hughes and Hawks, and coincidentally Howard Hawks was a big fan of Ian Fleming's and wanted to do the Bond series himself.
World War II. Cubby served in the entertainment division of the US Navy with another future movie producer, Ray Stark. After Demob, he became a representative at the powerful Charles K. Feldman's famous artist agency. Cubby learned a lot during his time there, and one of his clients at the time included a young Robert Wagner. But, like Harry Saltzman, Cubby wanted more. He grew tired of being an agent, and his ability to recognise good writing meant that he wanted to achieve more than just managing people and their careers. There was a short-lived marriage to starlet Gloria Blondell around this time, and borrowing nearly $80,000 from his cousin Pat, he worked on a B-picture called Treasury Agent, eventually having to take credit as production manager as cousin Pat was billed as producer. In 1952, Cubby and Oscar-winning director Irvin Allen formed their own production company, Warwick Film Productions. There was a dark cloud hanging over Hollywood at this time, as it was the notorious era of the McCarthy witch hunts. Coupled with this, Allen and Broccoli were struggling to raise any form of financing for future projects in the USA. Europe was calling. There were good tax incentives for those brave enough to take the plunge, and the whole McCarthy affair was stifling the air of creative freedom in Hollywood. Broccoli would recall years later that he never produced a picture in Hollywood. He was laughed at whenever he attempted to make a deal, and people would not even talk to him despite his desire to shoot in the USA. And so, in the very same year that Ian Fleming sat down to write the first James Bond novel, Cubby Broccoli travelled to England to begin a new life. In the UK at this time, the film industry was booming, boosted by the ED levy, which meant that a proportion of the price of a cinema ticket was returned to production companies who made, quote, British films. In other words, films made with key British talent. Popular films were rewarded as the size of the rebate was linked to the number of tickets sold. The more successful the picture, the more money the production companies received. The problem for Warwick Films would be securing a big name to star in a series of independent productions made in England. Just about the biggest star around at this time was Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd's wife, who was also his agent, just happened to be a friend of Cubby Broccoli. And so, Ladd went on to star in a number of Warwick productions. The Red Beret and The Black Knight, both released in 1953, and Hell Below Zero, released in 1954. All were distributed by Columbia Pictures, and soon Warwick was attracting such talent as director Terence Young and screenwriter Richard Maybaum. Warwick would go on through the 50s making such films as The Cockleshell Heroes and Fire Down Below starring Rita Hayworth, and it would soon accrue its own stock company of regular actors including Bernard Lee, Anthony Newley, Anita Ekberg, Francis DeWolf, Walter Gotel and Desmond Llewellyn most of whom would later be connected with the Bond series. 
Warwick Films prided itself on shooting full-colour features shot on real locations, packed with ambitious action and filmed on a relatively tight budget. Starring international actors and often based on best-selling contemporary novels, they were the perfect template for the future Bond movies. Heading up Warwick with Broccoli was Irving Allen. Both men had very different styles of management. Allen could be vulgar and explosive at times, but a very good showman, whereas Cubberley would pick up the pieces and urge people not to take Allen too seriously. In the summer of 1958, Cubby was spending as much time as he possibly could caring for his cancer-stricken wife Nedra, as well as trying to bring up their children Tony and Tina. This was also the time when Cubby and Irving were trying to secure the Bond novels. A meeting had been set up between them and Ian Fleming, and it was here in typical Irving Allen fashion that he denounced Bond to Fleming's face, suggesting these books aren't even television material. Cubby's wife would eventually succumb to cancer, and Cubby would remarry in 1959 with none other than Cary Grant as his best man. The trials of Oscar Wilde fared badly at the box office in 1960, and after numerous disagreements with Columbia Pictures, Warwick effectively ceased trading the year after. Cubby and Irving continued to share their offices for several years, but went their separate ways as producers. In 1961, with Cubby still keen to secure the Bond film rights, fate stepped in in the shape of screenwriter Wolf Mankiewicz. Wolf was working with Cubby at the time on a film version of A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, and it didn't take long before the conversation led them to Harry Saltzman a friend of Wolf's, who just happened to be the producer who had recently taken out the option to the movie rights for the Bond franchise. Cubby Broccoli didn't particularly want to go into another partnership so soon after Irving Allen, but time was running out. There was only 21 days left on the option, so both men, afraid that someone else would snatch the rights from under them, agreed to a 50-50 partnership. Broccoli, having worked successfully for many years with Columbia, approached them first. 
There are several stories here, including reports that the board at Columbia thought that Bond was just a subpar Mike Hammer, or that he was just too British. Another story says that an agreement could not be made due to the budgeting disagreements for the picture, a difference of $100,000. Whatever the reason, in a decision that has been compared to the legendary turning down of the Beatles by Decker a year later, Columbia Pictures said no. Back in 1961, Columbia Pictures and United Artists shared the same building on 7th Avenue, so the obvious answer was for Saltzman and Broccoli to go and see them instead. United Artists was now headed by Arthur Krim, a lawyer who a few years previously had worked on a movie with Broccoli called Avalanche. Krim and Robert Benjamin had been slowly building up the United Artists name, as since the early 50s it had been on the verge of bankruptcy. United Artists became known as the studio without walls, as it didn't have to maintain contract players or even a studio backlot and throughout the 50s it became known as a niche purveyor of groundbreaking quality film. And so, on the 20th of June 1961, Broccoli and Saltzman met with the key players at United Artists. Arthur Krim, Robert Benjamin, Arthur and David Picker, plus nine others. Krim tended to rely heavily on David Picker's viewpoint, and immediately Picker agreed to go with the project. But there would also be someone else, someone not present in that room, far more powerful than them all, and he would have an unseen influence over the whole affair. John F. Kennedy himself was a close friend of Arthur Krim, and it was of course no secret that the President had been reading the Bond novels and was a bit of a fan. essentially was it. Initially a handshake deal with Arthur Krim that would not be officially formalised until the 2nd of April 1962, after the first James Bond movie had finished shooting. Saltzman and Broccoli formed a new corporate entity called Danjack, named after Cubby and Harry's respective wives Dana and Jacqueline. The two producers also formed a company in England that would produce the movies as an independent entity. This service company was formed on the 6th of July 1961, and was named Eon Productions Limited. Initially, the name Eon actually didn't mean anything, but eventually, as legend took hold, a retronym emerged. Eon would soon come to stand for everything or nothing, quite apt for the creation of two hardened gambling men. Everything started to slot into place, but one big question remained. Which of the Bond novels should be filmed first? The first novel, Casino Royale, was out of the question as Eon didn't own the rights to it. The most recent book, Thunderball, was tied up in litigation with Kevin McClory. But the final decision came down to one overriding factor, money. Goldfinger would prove to be too expensive, and so it was decided that Doctor No would be the first movie, and if the series took off, they would continue from there. 
United Artists set a budget of $40,000 for the screenplay. Wolf Mankiewicz was brought on board with Richard Maybaum to develop a draft script initially written by Joanna Harwood. But it soon became apparent that even though the bestseller was less than three years old, this was now the 1960s and things would need some serious updating. Richard Maybaum would recall, When Wolf and I began working on the script, we decided that Fleming's Doctor No was the most ludicrous character in the world. He was just Fu Manchu with steel hooks. It was 1961 and we felt that audiences just wouldn't stand for that kind of stuff anymore. Harry Saltzman would declare that the books are larger than life and as a matter of fact I think that we are closer to life size than the books are. Well, this would be the first and last occasion that would be true. Snow was the sixth of the Bond novels and originally been published in the UK on the 31st of March 1958. Fleming used current events at the time as his inspiration. The USA falling behind the Soviets in the space race due to failed early rocket tests and unrest in the Caribbean that appeared to be leading to a revolution. The plot of the novel can be described as a typical Fleming book for Bond. The villain of the piece, the yet-to-be-named Dr. No, is the son of a German Methodist minister and a Chinese girl of good family. No is an ex-member of the Chinese gangsters known as the Hipsing Tongs, and after being caught embezzling from them, he had his hands cut off and replaced with hooks. Dr. Julius No, as he now calls himself, sets up a base on the fictional island of Crab Key, building an impenetrable fortress. Here, Dr. No sets up a business selling the guano or dung of a rare species of bird that inhabits the island as fertiliser. A group of ornithologists go missing whilst on an expedition to the island. Their disappearance is investigated by local Secret Service Chief Strangways, who is killed whilst investigating the case. It soon transpires that Dr. No is using radio beams to interfere with the telemetry of nearby rocket tests, causing them to fail. Dr. No is backed up by none other than the Soviets trying to inch forward in the early days of the space race. The book references the three blind mice as seen in the movie. Bond is nearly killed by a giant poisonous centipede and is trained by Quarrel, his friend from the Cayman Islands who had been introduced in Live and Let Die. 
Bond eventually has to manoeuvre a torturous obstacle course under the sadistic eye of Dr. No before battling a giant squid and killing Dr. No by burying him in bird droppings. Read the book, it's all there, I promise you. The film version would follow the basic story as laid out in the novel with some key changes. Broccoli, aware that he was seeking a global audience, insisted that Dr. No be working for Spectre, originally featured in Thunderball, and not the Soviets. Eventually, a completed script was handed in by Richard Maybaum and Wolf Mangovitz on the 12th of December 1961, and it was on this fourth draft of the script that the final budget for the movie would be determined. $40,000 was allocated for the director. First choice, Phil Carson, priced himself out immediately with a demand for $75,000. And besides, shouldn't the subject matter be handled by a British director? Ken Hughes, Guy Green and Brian Forbes all turned it down, leaving two names to be considered. Guy Hamilton rejected the offer for personal reasons, leaving just Terence Young, whose style of dress, whose style of life made him perfect for the position, as it was said he could almost have played the part of Bond himself. Young set to work on the script, eventually leading to Wolf Mankiewicz requesting that his name now be removed from the screenwriting credits. But of course, with a budget, director and a screenplay all now in place, the greatest task was of course to find the man who would actually play James Bond. Harry Grant was a huge fan of the novels and had also been best man at Cubby Broccoli's wedding. But with the budget for the entire cast standing at only $140,000, he was deemed too expensive. David Niven was considered briefly before Cubby Broccoli decided he wasn't tough enough for the role. Ian Fleming had always envisaged Bond with a similar background to himself. Raised in England, Swiss mother, Scottish heritage on his father's side, 
In fact, he had an act to remind himself the little-known Edward Underdown, but he was also rejected. United artists were hesitant about making a series using an unknown actor. Eon Productions' vision was for a series of films, one per year, from 1962 onwards, and there was no guarantee that a big name would commit to such a long tenure, and at what price. Legend has it that Ian Fleming also thought that the then relatively unknown Roger Moore would make a good bond. Moore was a close acquaintance of Fleming's best man Noel Coward, but Broccoli thought that Roger Moore was perhaps a little too young and just a little too pretty. Patrick McGowan and Michael Craig were considered. The story goes that McGowan, who was a strict Catholic, turned it down on moral grounds. Other names thrown into the ring included Albert Finney, Terence Howard, Michael Redgrave and Richard Johnson. There have been many stories and claims over the years as to who was responsible for bringing Sean Connery to the attention of the producers. Cubby Broccoli was first introduced to Connery by Lana Turner in 1958, and something about him just seemed right. Three years earlier, one of Connery's first leading roles, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, received its first advanced screenings at the Goldwyn Studios in Los Angeles. Dana Broccoli, Cubby's wife, would recall that she mentioned how much she admired Connery, and that he was just incredible. And Peter Hunt, who would eventually edit the first Bond film, knew Sean Connery from another movie they'd just both made called On the Fiddle. Hunt recalled sending out a couple of reels of footage featuring Connery to Broccoli and Saltzman. He wasn't sure, however, if this influenced their decision to hire the Scotsman, but it led to them hiring him as editor. The story of Sean Connery prior to Dr No is actually quite well known. People are familiar with the tale of the man born in Edinburgh on the 25th of August 1930, who left school at the age of 13 taking up jobs as a milkman and a coffin polisher before enlisting in the Royal Navy. His travels would only take him as far as Portsmouth however, as he was invalided out of the service due to stomach ulcers. There is the common story of him entering the Mr Universe competition and very nearly becoming a professional footballer for Manchester United before settling on a career in acting. By the time Sean Connery received the callback for the Bond audition, he had managed to carve a fairly successful career as a working actor on stage, television and film. 
Immediately, Saltzman and Broccoli knew they'd found their James Bond. They had been looking for a tough British figure with a certain degree of acting experience. Connery was the right age, and Broccoli noted at the time, for a large man he moves like a cat. For a large man he moves extremely well. Both Broccoli and Saltzman saw that Connery would provide the masculinity the part required. Producers were further convinced when they noted that there was also this misconception about James Bond as described by Fleming in the books. A lot of people believed he should be this school tie type of hero, but he wasn't. Their Bond would be a tougher kind of interpretation. Fleming actually described Bond as a blunt instrument, not the well-bred, erudite, educated gentleman a lot of people perceived him to be. United Artists had tried to make a success of Mickey Spillane novels but failed as they used a different actor every time. Eon Productions were looking for consistency with James Bond and that was something that could be achieved by using an unknown actor to portray him. Broccoli and Saltzman were determined that as the books were so successful they would make a star of the actor selected to play Bond. Eventually, 15 to 20 6 foot 2 British upper crust chisel faced hopefuls were screen tested but the big screen bond had already been decided. And on the 3rd of November 1961, Sean Connery was announced to the world as James Bond in the Daily Cinema. Bond cast, attention focused on the casting of the other characters. Ursula Andress was selected by Broccoli after seeing a photo of her in a wet t-shirt, one of the hundreds of photos scattered around his office at the time. Andress would not even have considered the role if it wasn't for Kirk Douglas. During a party hosted by Andress and John Derrick, Kirk Douglas, one of the guests, just happened to spot an unread copy of the Doctor No script lying on the table. After reading part of it out aloud to the other guests, Douglas suggested that Ursula Andress put herself forward. From the outset, Doctor No established the three-girl formula that would go on to prove to be popular in many of the subsequent movies. Girl 1 would be an initial fun dalliance. Girl 2, a more intriguing tangle with a girl who works for the enemy. And Girl 3, a final real encounter with the leading lady. In Doctor No, James Bond is introduced to the audience in a smoky casino across a baccarat table as he challenges girl number 1, Sylvia Trench. Sylvia Trench was played by Eunice Grayson, whose part was filmed round her stage schedule, as at the time she was starring in the London stage production of The Sound of Music. Zena Marshall took the role of the villainess, the Chinese minx Miss Tarot, girl number two. (laughs) 
A slight change to the novels was introduced and it would continue throughout the series. Miss Moneypenny, M's personal assistant, was depicted in the books as cool and distant. Bond himself had a secretary, Loelia Ponsonby, and it was with her that he shared a flirtatious relationship. Miss Moneypenny in the movies was to be a combination of both characters. Lois Maxwell would never have been cast as Moneypenny if it weren't for some serious bad luck at home. Her husband, TV executive Peter Marriott, became seriously ill and suffered a double coronary. Maxwell, knowing she had to find work to support her family, phoned round her friends and acquaintances in the movie business and begged for help. She had worked with Cubby Broccoli previously, and Broccoli was indeed a friend of her husband, and he immediately offered her a chance of playing either Moneypenny or Sylvia Trench. Jokingly, Lois Maxwell took the role of Moneypenny, as her legs weren't her best asset, and she couldn't see herself being filmed in just a pyjama top. And of course, if the films were to spawn the anticipated sequels, there would be plenty of work on the horizon. In fact, after Ian Fleming had seen a rough cut of the movie, he said to Lois Maxwell, When I wrote the part of Miss Moneypenny, I had in my mind's eye a tall, elegant woman with the most kissable lips in the world, and you are precisely that. Bernard Lee was a very familiar face in British movies at this time. In the novels, M was written as a kind of tough father figure. Lee, along with the scriptwriters, would create a more authoritarian figure. Major Boothroyd, the armourer, was introduced in Doctor No and was portrayed by Peter Burton. Of course, in later movies he would become better known as the Quartermaster Q and be played for many years by Desmond Llewellyn right through to Piers Brosnan's tenure. Ian Fleming's suggestion that his friend and neighbour Noel Coward should play the role of Dr. No was quickly rejected by Coward himself. At the suggestion of Harry Saltzman, the noted Canadian stage actor Joseph Wiseman was cast as the Chinese scientist. With makeup that made him look vaguely oriental and a mousy tongue type tunic, he was equipped with metal gloves instead of hooks. Wiseman's cold portrayal would form the basis for most of the future Bond villains. Casting was completed with Jack Lord as the first of many actors who would go on to portray Felix Leiter throughout the series. Professor Dent was played by Anthony Dawson and the role of Quarrel went to John Kitzmiller. As well as the characters, an entire world had to be created. The James Bond world as it were, and so Broccoli turned to the department heads at Warwick Pictures, director of photography Ted Moore and legendary production designer Ken Adam. Ken Adam would work on many of the Bond films throughout the series. And as well as designing most of the famous large-scale sets used in the movies, he was also responsible for sets such as the War Room in Doctor Strangelove.
to the music, Broccoli again turned to an old friend. Monty Norman had written a musical backed by Broccoli called Bell or the Ballad of Dr. Crippen. It was savaged by the critics at the time, but Cubby Broccoli stood by his promise that they would work again. Mango, banana and tangerine, sugar and aki and cocoa. Monty Norman was married at the time to actress Diana Coupland. Coupland would find fame about 10 years later as Sid James's long-suffering wife in the TV sitcom Bless This House. Coupland herself would find a role in Doctor No as she was called upon to provide the singing voice for Ursula Andress. Ken Adam, as production designer, knew that this movie could potentially be huge and so he wanted to create something different. Working with all the Pinewood heads of departments, the construction manager, chief plasterer, chief painter, etc., he tasked them with experimenting with new technologies, new materials and techniques. He even flew them out to Florida to look at marsh buggies that could potentially be adapted into Dr. No's terrifying dragon tanks. We get married, we make them grow, and nine little child in a row. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me, come watch for the moon. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me, we plan marry soon. Underneath the mango tree, underneath the mango tree, underneath the mango tree, underneath. photography began at Palisades Airport in Kingston on the 16th of January 1962. The entire British contingent of the crew were flown out on one specially chartered aeroplane. Together there were stuntmen, technicians, actors and film crew. It proved to be a beneficial move as they all got to know each other well on the long flight and continued with the camaraderie throughout the shoot. Filming continued for the first two months of 1962 across different locations in Jamaica. There was Government House, where Bond meets Plydell Smith hot on the trail of Miss Tarot and Professor Dent. There was a concrete factory in the Blue Mountains, where car chases and stunt work was superbly handled by stuntman Bob Simmons. Ursula Andress never actually screen-tested for the role of Honey Rider and met director Terence Young and the producers officially for the first time on her arrival in February 1962. 
first scene to be filmed was the final shot of the movie, Bond casting a dinghy adrift from the US Marine gunboat. Ian Fleming and his wife visited the set as the crew were filming in Falmouth. Here they met Ursula Andress and they got on so well he even included a reference to her in the latest James Bond novel that he was writing on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Cast and crew got on well both while they were working and in their free time. Andress likened their relationship to a family, with Sean Connery and Terence Young being great mentors. On the 8th of February 1962, the crew had moved across the island to a place known as Laughing Water, the estate of Mrs Minnie Simpson. And it was here that one of the most iconic scenes in movie history was shot. In Fleming's novel, he describes the scene with Honey Rider emerging from the water completely naked, her hands covering her groin and endearingly a broken nose, leaving her breasts on display. Well, quite frankly, the censors would certainly not pass that scene for a general audience. On arrival in Jamaica, Ursula Andress worked alongside costume designer Tessa Pendergrast to create one of the most iconic costumes ever seen on celluloid. A costume that even at this time was still a rather risque piece of clothing, but became the most famous bikini in the world. The mango tree, my honey and me. Who is that? It's all right. I'm not supposed to be here either. I take it you're not. Are you alone? What are you doing here? Looking for shells? No, I'm just looking. Stay where you are. The initial design was to be based on the traditional Jamaican style, patterned with palm shell. trees, leaves, or tropical flowers. Either. But Andrus wanted something simple, something striking, but it also had to be functional to cope with all the action sequences and the running about. Fashioned from a British Army webbing belt, the bikini itself was ivory and not white as is commonly believed. Many years later, the bikini was auctioned for £41,000, nearly 30 times her salary of £1,500 for appearing in the movie. What's your name? Ryder. Rider what? Honey, Rider. What's so funny about it? Nothing. It's a very pretty name. What's your name? James. Location filming moved on. The exterior of Dr. No's Crab Key Lair was the exterior of the Reynolds Borksite docks, a location that will be later painstakingly recreated in miniature in order to be blown up by the special effects team at Pinewood. Captain, quick, down here! Whatever's coming, it's coming this way! This time I want to see it. 
The scene where Bond, Honey and Quarrel encounter the Dragon Tank was filmed at the Vansy Swamp Salt Marsh. On set, the crew were plagued by leeches and mosquitoes and the tank itself had been damaged in transit from Florida. This apparently was not the full extent of unforeseen problems. Although cast and crew worked together superbly, there were issues regarding local work practices, bad weather and delayed actors and equipment. Stay where you are, all of you. Stay right where you are. The production had gone over budget and many desired shots had just not been captured. It was time to pack up and resume filming at Pinewood Studios. Okay, Captain. Is that in a dragon? What is it? The dragon that runs on diesel engines. You can forget the spook squirrel. When it gets within range, you take the driver. I'll take the headlights and the tires. You keep safe out of sight. Long, long. Excuse me, sir. Are you a member? No, I'm looking for Mr. James Bond. What name should I say, sir? Just give him my card, will you? Would you like to leave your coat over there, sir? At Pinewood, Ken Adams had created a magnificent casino set based on his ambassador in London. It was here the world would first be introduced to James Bond on the big screen. Initially, Bond is seen from behind and in profile, but never fully revealed. The house will cover the difference. We're witnessing being pursued on the chemin de fer table by the gorgeous Sylvia Trench in a striking red dress who prompts his introduction. I need another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to, um, raise the limit? I have no objection. Director Terence Young deliberately altered the timing of the scene. Now. So that instead of flicking his lighter and uttering the words, Connery paused a beat. Like and then exhaled it's an idea at that. as he revealed his name for the first time through a haze of smoke. Thank you. Andre, I must pass the shoe. Jean-Jean, I hope you'll forgive me, but it's most important. Thank you. Have those changed, will you? Bad, you have to go. Just as things were getting interesting. Yes. Tell me, Miss Trench, do you play any other games? I mean, uh, besides Chemin de Fer. Hmm, golf, amongst other things. More afternoon, then? Tomorrow? Mm -hmm. See now. And, uh, we could have dinner afterwards, perhaps? Sounds tempting. May I, um, let you know in the morning? Splendid. My number's on the card.
The scene featuring the tarantula crawling up Bond's body was also shot at Pinewood. In the novel, the creature is a giant centipede which Connery probably would have preferred as he was terrified of spiders. To enable the scene to work, a plate of glass was placed between Connery and the spider. The shot was filmed at an angle, but with Connery virtually standing up to minimise the reflection in the glass. But some reflections were visible so the ever-reliable stuntman Bob Simmons was brought in who gladly let the creature walk all over him. Another scene involving animals was not quite as successful and eventually didn't make it into the finished movie. In the novel, Dr. No ties up Honey Rider and tortures her as she is being eaten alive by migrating crabs. An attempt to recreate this in the studio took place, but the crabs which had been flown in on ice specially for the shoot had to be defrosted somehow. Director Terence Young suggested steaming them, which only resulted in partially cooking the poor creatures. Needless to say, most of the crew took home a crab for their dinner that evening. Stop it, Professor. I'm behind you. In order to highlight Bond's ruthlessness, a scene was written specially. In the scene, Professor yeah, Dent empties his gun into later. what he believes is James Bond asleep on a bed. He is in fact pillows placed under the blankets. But of course. They were suspicious at the Queen's Club anyhow. When it turned out you were the only one who'd seen Strangway's new secretary. And then later at the lab, you made no reference to the fact that Strangway's samples were radioactive. Very clever, Mr. Bond. But you're up against more than you know. You shoot me and you'll end up like Strangway's. And you killed him? He was killed, but never mind how. Who are you working for, Professor? Well, you might as well know, as you won't live to use the information. I'm working for... Bond is watching him from the shadows and declares... Mr. Smith and Wesson. And you've had your six. Before shooting him at point-blank range, even shooting him in the back after he's fallen, the scene was filmed twice, the second time omitting the shots to the back just in case the censors took offence. There were also concerns that Bond would lose the sympathy of the audience by acting so coldly, but the scene remained in the final version of the film. The finale in Dr. No's nuclear reactor was filmed on the A stage at Pinewood towards the end of March 1962. We will run up to half power for 30 seconds. 
Control interlocks free. Fuel elements 12.5. Designer Ken Adam based his design of the huge set on the Harwell nuclear plant. Ken Adam had to dip into the production's contingency fund following this as he had pretty much blown the design budget. Control. Control but it all worked out in the end. The entire film was over budget and over schedule when principal photography officially wrapped on the 26th of April 1962. Energy stabilizers. Energy steady at 0.8 megawatts. Fuel elements. Let's see, we're just checking down our gantry. Fuel elements. Where's Chang? Chang, what are you doing there? Get on the gantry. Film finances oversaw post-production duties. Optimism for the movie was high, with the general consensus being that they had made a $5 million movie for just over $1 million. In post-production, several decisions were made that would go on to be part of pretty much all the future Bond movies. Editor Peter Hunt, along with sound engineer Norman Wanstall, created an almost unique feel to the film by using rapid cutting, exaggerated sound effects, and sacrificing realism for pacing and style. The idea was to create something exciting, special and macho, and not give the audience a chance to overanalyse it as it got swept up in the fast pace of the film. From this, the very first Bond movie, it opens with the now classic introduction. A series of white dots appear on the black screen, which then reveals to be the inside of a gun barrel. the figure of James Bond across the screen. Bond turns to face the camera and shoots. A wash of blood covers the screen. This entire sequence was the brainchild of graphic artist Morris Binder. Initially working on the idea of using gunshots and bullet holes, it soon developed into the now famous sequence. And surprisingly, rather than rely on artwork or special effects, a genuine gun barrel was used. The short barrel British service revolver, the Colt 45. This would be problematic of course as it proved impossible to get the camera to focus. So working on the principle of a pinhole camera, a small hole was punched into some black paper. Binder then cogged the iris to shut right down, resulting in the perfect shot of the interior of the gun barrel. Even more surprisingly, due to gun laws in England at the time, a policeman was required to be present throughout. Just as iconic as the gun barrel opening are the Bond movie title sequences themselves. These along with the numerous theme tunes have created some of the most memorable credit openings in the history of cinema. There was however no opening credit or title song for this first movie. Morris Binder decided that as the plot of the movie featured Dr No, 
and his dastardly use of computers, there should be some sort of electronic effect reflected in the opening sequence. The electronic sounds you hear as the white dots glide across the screen were created by a little old lady from Surrey who'd been experimenting with electronic sound. And again, it's at this point in our story that we must mention stuntman Bob Simmons, for it was not Sean Connery in the title sequence, but the dependable stuntman who spins around and shoots at the camera. To say there was no specific theme tune to Doctor No is not strictly true. The Caribbean setting of the movie gave rise to the use of a Calypso version of Three Blind Mice, visualised by an image of the three actors playing the blind hitmen walking on a treadmill against a white background. And of course, Doctor No gave rise to perhaps the most famous film theme in the world. The now legendary James Bond theme, written by Monty Norman, originated from an abandoned musical he had written about three years earlier. The musical was based on the V.S. Nepal book A House for Mr. Biswas, and the piece of music that would forever be associated with the most famous spy in the world was originally entitled Bad Sign, Good Sign. I was born with this unlucky sneeze And what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round Pundits all agree that I'm the reason why my father fell Into the village pond and drowned I was born under a bad sign Love Trinidad said it was a bad sign Hindus and Chinese, Africans and Portuguese Everybody worry about my sneeze Achoo! John Barry would also lay claim to creating the legendary theme tune, stating that he had composed the tune with his band the John Barry Seven. Norman would dispute this, claiming that he worked with Barry in order to get the exact orchestration of what he was trying to achieve. Norman was looking for a rhythmic sustained sound for the opening four bar figure, low octave guitar for the main melodic theme, and of course the big band sound of the hard riding middle section. John Barry would claim that he was brought in by Noel Rogers, who was United Artists' London music chief, and that the tune had its roots in his composition entitled Bee's Knees. And although the distinctive guitar of Vic Flick can be heard in both tunes, Monty Norman retained the credit and the copyright to the track. Legal wranglings would continue for decades, and in a trial held in 2001 lasting five days, a jury decided that Monty Norman did indeed compose the James Bond theme. It was also revealed during the trial that the track had earned Norman nearly half a million pounds between 1976 to 1999, whereas back in 1962 John Barry received a mere £250. Pounds. 
At the time of production of Doctor No, it was immediately realised that the music used in the movie and any subsequent Bond movies could prove to be a potential source of huge revenue. With this in mind, United Artists also made sure that it retained all copyright licensing and synchronisation rights to the music in the films. Broccoli and Saltzman's production company Danjack also shared in the revenues and retained a free hand in the choice of composers and artists. Summer 1962 and the first previews of Doctor No were screened. The first set of trailers featuring a voiceover by Sean Connery didn't go down too well at United Artists. On the subject of financial matters, for some reason Ian Fleming had dictated a very limited deal with regard to licensing. Whilst happy for the producers to attain tie-in deals with cigarette manufacturers, alcoholic beverages, Hathaway shirts, Triumph cars and Gossard bikinis, it bizarrely stipulated no promotion of toiletry items including soap and deodorants. Part of the marketing campaign for the movie included the enduring 007 logo featuring the number 7 as the handle of a gun. Designed by Joseph Karoff who was paid $300 for his trouble, the logo or a version of it has been used in promoting every single James Bond movie. W6N calling G7W, stand by to transmit. G7W London. G7W London receiving you. Over. What's that? W6N Kingston, Jamaica, broken contact, sir. A Strangway just disappeared. Jamaica went off the air tonight, just like that. You're booked on the 7 o'clock plane to Kingston, and that gives you exactly 3 hours 22 minutes. I want to know what's happened to Strangways. Welcome to Jamaica, Mr. Bond. I'm a friend of Commander Strangways. I thought you might be able to tell me what happened to him. As far as I know, nothing happened. Unless you know different, Captain. Where did you take him? See that, Captain? That there's the Caribbean. Are you alone? What are you doing here? I'm just looking. Dr. No? He killed my father. Are you going to arrest Dr. No? Well, someone is. Clumsy effort, Mr. Bond. You disappoint me.
My, your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. The first print was screened for a handful of United Artists executives. After a brief period of silence following the screening, the head of European operations was reported as saying, the only good thing about the picture is that we can only lose $84,000. Shattered by the reaction, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Salzman nervously awaited the reaction from the audience at the movie's worldwide premiere on the 5th of October 1962 at the London Pavilion. Monty Norman recorded definite buzz in the air. Ian Fleming's reaction was, those who have read the books are likely to be disappointed, but those who haven't will find it a wonderful movie. Fleming was not keen on Connery's portrayal, especially the Scottish accent. Fleming's vision of Bond was that of a very educated, high-born Englishman, much like himself. The UK's flagship cinema, The Odeon Leicester Square, only showed the movie due to the rank chain needing to make good on their British picture quota policy. A decision that led to the movie getting a major commercial shot. Records were starting to be broken. The movie made £69,000 in its first week, a record it held for 11 years. The movie was being played 24 hours a day for £1 a ticket. United Artists, who hated the movie, seeing it as a mere B-picture, were the most surprised of all. But even after the massive success in the UK, the US release seven months later was badly handled. Distributors, anxious to get their money back, tucked it away as a drive-in feature. Dr. No never opened in New York, Chicago or any of the major cities. Broccoli stated it opened from the inside. Despite all of this, the big screen version of James Bond fascinated the movie-going public. Women wanted him, men wanted to be him. There was just something about the impeccable manners, the style, the ruthlessness and the sex appeal. Sean Connery became a star overnight and preparations began to film the next instalment. Connery was unsure about signing up for such a long contract. He liked the idea of a certain amount of freedom, but Connery and Bond became intertwined throughout the decade. With James Bond, Ian Fleming, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman created one of the most recognisable and successful characters in modern popular culture. The novels to date have sold over 100 million copies and the movie franchise is the second most successful in movie history, only having been recently displaced by the Harry Potter series. But who knows, with the recent entries into the Bond franchise earning box office receipts of over a billion dollars, 
the franchise may soon find itself back on top. Doctor No was followed the next year by the movie adaptation of From Russia With Love. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, music and theme songs would become an all-important part of each of the movies. For From Russia With Love, the producers chose a man to sing the theme tune who was known as the singing bus driver. Some labelled him Britain's answer to Frank Sinatra, although he was much more than that and possibly the finest male popular singing voice the UK has ever produced. With theme tunes The Born Free and The Italian Job, the 60s would also crown him the king of the movie soundtrack. Next time, why don't you join me as I tell the story of Matt Munro. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast. Or take a look at the website rainbowvalley.libsyn.com. Or you can send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Pause production. Stinking Pause.